Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and this is episode 86. And today, we're going to be talking about the journey of the Canadian church. Let's do this. We are back, and thank you guys so much once again for continuing to join us on this conversation. And today we have such a special topic. It's a topic that we've always wanted to dive deeper into because this is part of our makeup. This is part of how we find our place in our story, and it's to examine the Canadian church. As always, we have Bernard and Xenia here. How are you guys doing? What's up? Hi there. Hello, hello. Oh, we're excited. And we have a very special guest joining us today. We have Dr. James Robertson, and he is a professor at Tyndale. He came over to Ontario to do his master's, his doctorate. And it's fascinating all the things that he's been working on in regards to examining the Canadian church and charting out that journey, that path. And we want to learn more about it today. He did his doctoral work looking around the War of 1812. And that's crazy. That's awesome. And how religion fit in there. So definitely go check out some of his work. He's connected with New Leaf Network. He's continuing to work on a lot of new monographs. He's a speaker. So you might be hearing him. His mic probably is the best one out of all of us today. And we're also going to be talking a little bit about his book, Overlooked, which talks about some of the forgotten voices in the Canadian Christian story. So, Dr. James Robertson, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. This is exciting. What a good energy. And oh, man. Fun. It's good. The low frequency of your voice is automatically going to get everyone in the mood to listen to Canadian church and Christian history. So I'm excited. Or put them to sleep, either way, <laughs> as long as they come out refreshed. You know, they have those apps right now where there's someone reading a story and people are just becoming calm and serene. So yes, but aside from that more professional introduction, how would you introduce yourself? If someone was asking, Dr. Robertson, what are you all about? What would you say? Oh, great question. Yeah, I think you nailed it on the uh, the head there. I am a historian. While I, I love the entirety of the Christian history story, I definitely focus most of my research on discovering the the building blocks of the Canadian context, because uh, cool. I think Canada is a ve- very unique nation. There's an interesting collection of cultures here that we sort of put loosely under the umbrella of Canada. So uh, I say near the beginning of the book is I could write this book every year for the rest of my career and not tell the same story twice. So it's really sort of interesting to do that. So I would say professionally, I'm a historian of Canadian Christian history and sort of seeing it as an ongoing development of the larger 2000 year Christian story. That is so awesome. And I would imagine that would be almost a novelist dream that they'd don't have to think about new ideas, but just continue to write the story that continues to unfold. So, you know, there will never be writer's block. Exactly. You, have, you always have something to write about. <laughs> I mean, writer's block is definitely a very real malady. <laughs> uh, yes, there's no, there's no shortage of, of content. I've said many times, and I'll say it again here, I don't understand why anybody studies anything other than history. I say this to my colleagues. I say this to everybody's like, mm. why aren't you studying history? It's the only thing we're studying, but 
And I'm sure everyone agrees with you. So that's why you're a guest today. That's excellent. Exactly. So as we kind of start today, we know that you have an upcoming book that's going to be released. Probably by the time this episode is released, the book may actually be already released. So buy the book. Check it out. You can find it on New Leaf Network. I think you are publishing it through New Leaf Press. So shout outs to our friends in New Leaf. But as we kind of look at this book, you've entitled it Overlooked, The Forgotten Origins and Stories of Canadian Christianity. So we want to invite you to share a little bit about like what inspired you to write the book and some of the main kind of topics and contents in the book. Great. Yeah. Well, first off, the credit for the title Overlooked goes to Alicia Wilson, a member of the New Leaf Writing Circle. It was fun. I, I kicked around a lot of different ideas for, for topics and titles of this book, which in some ways might be indicative of a lack of clear vision, but it is that trying to get together all these sort of Canadians and like, what is the point of this? And really the, the genesis of it was this talk on you know, the, the increased awareness of secularity in Canada, all this concern about what is post-Christendom Canada. And New Leaf was kind enough to invite me to be, to bring sort of a historical understanding of it. And that was the beginning of sort of digging into some research and figuring out what are some of these ideas. And then as I decided to foolishly say, yeah, I'll write a popular level book in my academic arrogance, thinking like, I'll knock that off in like a month, <laughs> <laughs> jump cut to two years later, <laughs> I've lost a lot of hair. My beard's a lot grayer. One of the really exciting elements that I discovered was like, I'm seeing very similar arguments from all different sort of phases of Canadian Christianity. I'm like, this is interesting. The reasons behind them, all different. Uh, the politics, the culture, who's talking about them, all different, but a lot of very similar concerns. And the, and the concern kind of boils down to there's a lack of Christian influence over this country. And we need to, we need to remedy that now, or the country is doomed or damned, depending on, on the denomination. And, and so you see all these struggles back and forth and, and previous generations doing it kind of created the Christian world we currently inhabit. I was like, this is interesting. And then the other part of it is talking with a lot of, you know, pastors, interested Christians, concerned Christians, people trying to do something new, people just who see the value of the church really struggling with this and feeling that either, you know, we've, we've wandered away from the true gospel. Our country is against us as Christians that, you know, being a Christian in Canada in the 21st century is somehow a, power, a party foul. And that was one of the titles kicked around party foul. <laughs> okay. But again, just sort of taking that Canadian thing and we don't feel as divided, for example, because we always compare ourselves to America, it doesn't seem like the divisions are as dramatic or as pronounced. It's more like, I like to say like Canadians famously say a like EH. And I was like, and all you do is add an M to the beginning of that. And you got Canadians opinions on religion. It's like, meh. Like, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's cool. I do CrossFit. Or I'm a, you know, it's just a kind of a descriptor that doesn't carry with it any more weight than anything else. So that was sort of the, finding out the backdrop of why Canadians think this way and hopefully remedying uh, a lot of concerned Christians that the church is somehow somewhere, somehow in the past took a misstep. And now we're, we're in trouble. We're in a valley of shadow of death and, and finding that it was like, actually, you know what? This, this is part of a bigger puzzle. I don't think this is about theologically unfaithful Christians or religiously unfaithful Canadians, it, you can actually see conscious steps, not taken by people trying to destroy the church, but by people who believe Canada will be better served going in this direction, which allows the church to be one voice among many. And, uh, and of course, from the Christian perspective, that seems like decline, but from a larger perspective, it can actually be hopeful and, and less problematic. So that, that kind of is the quick backdrop of, of why I wrote the book. 
maybe maybe just a follow-up you had mentioned a little bit about secularity so maybe for some of our listeners who aren't too familiar with the definition like how would mm. how would you define secularity big question well i think the probably the most common descriptor given to it is this idea that you know people don't go to church canadians don't tend to go to church that much so every every christian denomination is in a sense of decline now statistically that lacks a little bit of nuance but as i state in the book really secularization post-christendom is the the church and in canada when we're talking about the church it really is the christian church number one the most numerically large church throughout canadian history has always been the catholic church roman catholic Hmm. we do have a variety of orthodox churches and then of course the almost innumerable denominations that fall under the, the title of protestant so Christianity has been a very dominant, it is the dominant religious voice of Canada and has been since the settlers first came here in, you know, we'll, we'll say like the late 1700s. And we can come back to what I mean by that a little bit later. But really, it's it's a sort of 1940s to 1970s kind of development away from the church being the guardian of meaning, the the idea that what we find meaning both on a micro and macro level was sort of guarded by the church. The language behind it was church language, uh, how we understood what a country was, how we understood our role in the global scale. Some of our policies have been very informed by Christianity more than any other religion. And then definitely in the 1960s, it, it shifts into a much more quote unquote secular. And by that, it's, it's everything from education goes to the government, healthcare goes to the government. Of course, the 1960s, uh, communication's a lot better. So we have uh, what Bruce Duvo calls the spiritual smorgasbord. We have increased uh, use of marijuana, increased in uh, attention to, for example, Eastern mystic rites and whatnot, made popular just by one example, by like bands like the Beatles. And so there, all of a sudden, the, the Christian narrative is not the dominant narrative anymore. It's, it's increasingly becomes one voice among many. So that would be more the sort of the secularism of it. It's just taking how we understand the world out of the religious sphere and placing it into a more universal or slash secular sphere as opposed to just within the Christian church. Yeah, I think that's great. It's just kind of interesting that as you're describing it, I feel like secularism has been co-opted by Christianity. It's like we own the word. Like mm-hmm. we, you know, <laughs> we, we are the most affected by secularity, but not anybody else. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, if you weren't in the Christian church, why would you ever use the term secular? Because again, secular is sort of set up as a juxtaposition or the other side of the spectrum from sacred. So all church-related stuff. And I mean, probably the easiest way is we talk about like secular music. So there's there's Christian worship music and then there's secular music. And are you listening to too much secular music? And is are you watching too much secular TV and secular, secular, secular? So in some aspects, I guess the church can have a monopoly on the term. But I'm always a little concerned, again, about how Canadians are understanding that term. Because you're right, it, it's, it's a term steeped in loss. It's, yeah. it's a sense that we used to be some way. And now we're like this. And the word we use to describe that is secularization, the process of destroying Christianity in Canada. That's a touch dramatic of a definition. But I feel like for many, this is kind of like their existential crisis, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, man, the secular world is among us. Well, no, it's always been there. You just didn't realize it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, I want to be very, like, sometimes we'll be a little tongue in cheek, but I'm I'm also very aware and want to take seriously people's concerns. But how they frame those concerns and actually what triggered those concerns does tend to be a little bit more, ooh, I'll use this. It tends to be a little bit more secular because it really does a lot, a lot of the time boil down to how many people are sitting in your church on a Sunday morning. 
And that's not necessarily a spiritual crisis. That's a market share crisis. And I think that's driven Ooh. more by commercialism than it is by Christianity. Because again, when you go all the way back to Jesus, and I don't like jumping back to the earliest churches because there's 2,000 years of history there. So it's rarely a one-to-one. There's a lot of things to unpack. But I mean, he operated from the periphery of power. His earliest believers extolled the virtues of weakness because when you're weak, that's when you're dependent on God and, and vulnerability and authenticity and weakness always trump power in God's economy. And so there's a whole lot of language around weakness that maybe 21st century Canadian Christians, if they embrace that a bit more, would actually see the time we're in right now offering us some very unique gifts that other Canadian Christians before us never actually had the access to. They had too much power and had to operate from that. And now that it's been taken away, if nothing else, you can do whatever you want with your church because nobody cares. Outside of your own church, nobody's listening, nobody's (laughs) watching. So you can kind of have some fun with it. One of the things I wanted to also follow up from what you had just talked about a little bit earlier is as you've been charting this out, as you've been mapping it and examining and discovering things, you mentioned that there was this still this sense of hopefulness that you know you're hoping to be able to share with others and be able to at least point towards, especially as you have, you know, you've you've kind of taken this route of of looking at all these ways in which the influence and the impact of Canadian Christianity has had on our society. And we definitely want people to buy your book. And so, you know, don't give everything away, but, you know, just a little bit for us in terms of, for you, what is the hopefulness that you do hold on to as you're moving forward? One of our listeners sent us some feedback. They had some concerns that they're saying that the the, the place, the the voice of Canadian Christians, the Canadian church is continuing to decline and to decrease. So how do we become salt and light in the world? How do we continue to be a witness to others? And I think you mentioned it a little bit in terms of kind of the ways of Jesus and how he approached it. But for you yourself, what's some of the hopefulness that you hold on to? Great question. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's beautiful. And this is why I always studied history. History to me is, is always hope-filled, even when you're looking at the most diabolical and problematic stuff, because it reminds <laughs> you that everything we're dealing with, there's nothing new under the sun to go all the way back to uh, Solomon or whoever wrote, whoever wrote those Proverbs. I don't want to get into a biblical authorship debate because I'm vastly un- unarmed. So, okay, there, there's a bunch of different things, but I'll focus on one element. One, when we talk about post-Christendom, I want to look at what do we mean by Christendom? What was Canadian Christendom? And as much as it was very influential, and you're absolutely right, like you cannot understand Canada now without, I'd make the argument probably a bit more Protestant, but definitely Catholic for its numeric stuff. So I don't want to, I don't want to downplay Catholicism, but you know, when we're in Christendom, the Protestant narrative was definitely the more accepted one because the, the leaders were members of various Protestant orders. But given the uh, uh, the audience and the content of who I'm talking to right now, one of the major issues in, we'll say, early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century Christendom was the church's role in immigration. And so the church wanted the right kind of people populating Canada. Mm. 1880s up to about the beginning of the 20th century, Chinese immigrants, for example, were, were sought after, um, not for any merit other than to help build the railroad, especially on the West Coast in, in present-day British Columbia. 
at, at the heart of it. And I don't think anybody here will be too surprised to learn that 19th century views toward race or gender were exactly what we would call progressive. It was, we're going to use them. And once the railroad was done, increasingly restrictive immigration was, was placed on because they were considered, um, one, not white, two, not from Christian country. So therefore, they're going to be bringing in non-Christian religions like Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism and all these different sort of words that we, we would hear. So it's, it's a threat to the Protestant and frankly, Anglo-Saxon nature of Canada. So increasing amount of, of taxes were leveled against anybody uh, Chinese that wanted to immigrate. In 1907 in Vancouver, in the, the very forward and progressive and multicultural nation of Canada, in 1907, there were the Asian race riots, as they were called, in which case a bunch of white settlers, people that look like me, attacked Chinatown in, in Vancouver and did a tremendous amount of damage, harmed a lot of people. I believe people died. I'm not 100% sure, but the damage was substantial. And then went on to Japantown. Um, but by then, uh, the Japanese people living, and again, it's just Chinatown and Japantown, where it's, uh, because people from China and Japan had no recourse, no employment, no way to sort of care for themselves. So they would move into these areas where at least they knew each other and could protect each other. Hmm. And then the white settlers went on and the Japanese were able to, uh, to beat them back. But it, it got international attention. Like Canada made newspapers around the world. And it was an, obviously a profound embarrassment. But the backdrop of this sort of stuff is part of the Canadian Christendom, is this belief that Canada has to be this. And again, the dominant narrative was Protestant, Anglo-Saxon, masculine. And this is just one element of it. So when I look at something like Christendom, I, I could see some unbelievable stuff because Christendom also gave us socialized health care, thanks to Tommy Douglas, who was very clear that his, his Christian Baptist beliefs inspired his political. Uh, on the prairies is also William Aberhart problematic for a few other reasons, but, you know, starts up the social credit party. So there's a social element of Canadian Christendom, which is really powerful. And we have a lot to thank them for, for a lot of our social safety nets, but there's some dark side to it as well. There's violence, there's restrictive policies that when I sort of look back on it, I was like, okay, Christendom gave us some stuff, but there's some elements of it that were really problematic that the hope I go forward is like, I'm happy to see that Christendom overall, it breaking down some of the better social elements of it have stayed now are now part of Canadian policy, but some of the more restrictive and it's specifically Protestant and a very specific definition of Protestant, that kind of power has been broken, which has allowed more voices on the Canadian scene. And what we've seen time and time again is the more voices you have, yeah, it's messier, but you tend to get to better places that, uh, that provide a safer world for more people. Uh, so that's why when I look at the past and people lament Christendom, I'm actually like, there's elements of Christendom that needed to go. And that's what gives me hope is like, I don't think we've been abandoned. I don't think this is a result of national sin. I think this is like all things, Canada is a young country. Obviously, when I talk about Canada, I'm talking about like when the settlers were here, both Catholic and Protestant. I'm not talking about the various indigenous cultures that obviously have been here for thousands of years. But this version of Canada, this place we call Canada is very young. And it is a child of the modern era. And it is a child of the imperial age. And it shares a border with the biggest republic the world has ever known. So in that weird tension, there's a lot of beautiful complexity and a lot of evolution that needs to take place. And I, I, I see the trajectory overall heading in a positive direction. Now, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm just going to quickly follow up on something you said, just very quickly. I know we got lots of questions for you, but I just want to hear from you. In your own research and in your own conversations, 
when instances like what you just brought up in regards to immigration, in regards to race, what have you seen in terms of people's response? You know, what was the church's response back in the day? Were they part of it? Were they against it? Were they taking another stance on it? And today, when people hear about it, how do people react? Mm, yeah. If, if it's going to be a quick response, it, like, like today, there is, there's nuance. There's people that are very, very opposed to it, are very vocal. I mean, the United Church of Canada joined with the French Catholics during the Second World War to fight the Canadian government against conscription. They were vocal on the Japanese internment camps that took, that took place in Banff, Alberta. They were vocal in opposition to the province of Alberta's sterilization and use of eugenics in the 1920s. Mm. But then, of course, there's people that are in support of all of this sort of stuff. Really, what it kind of boils down to is, I don't think this will surprise anybody, who's on top? Like the people who the status quo serves are very adamant uh, about maintaining that status quo. Uh, other groups that are operating on the underside of power are a lot more critical towards it. The Methodists provide a really good case study in that the 19th century, they were numerically stronger because they spent a lot of time in the villages and looking at the people who were not considered, whereas the Anglicans or the Presbyterians had the churches in the cities and, and had some of the power and the influence and whatnot. But then again, as the Methodists get respectability through the 19th century, they become somewhat of the entity that they were fighting against. And we see that again as well. Like in the 1960s, you have all the wonderful, you know, the beginnings of the, the Jesus people movement. You have like a, a social Christianity, Jesus, long hair and sandals and anti-government <laughs> and pro-peace that it fits beautifully within, you know, young people in the 1960s Christianity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jesus is, is peaceful and he's perfect. Like he looks like a 1960s hippie and he has a lot. And to a certain extent, yeah, absolutely. Like they, they didn't have to do a lot of theological gymnastics to have Jesus <laughs> anti-institution and like he is anti-institutional. He is pro-peace. He is pro-love. So, you know, 1960s definitions of those terms are different than Jesus. But again, those 1960s radicals are the leaders by the late 1970s and 1980s. And so they become, in some ways, they start to embody the institution that their earlier radicalism fought against. It looks different, but it embodies some of the spirit anyway that they fought against. So it's not, there's, you're going to have voices across the spectrum. And, and the closest I can see to being like, who is, who is for and who is against was, as with all things, if you're on top of society, you have the vested interest in keeping things the way they are. If you're on the other side of society or growing up or young, you have a vested interest in changing things. And that tends to be how things play, which, and this is where I'll leave it to, which is what makes Catholicism so interesting because it always was the hands down, hands down the biggest expression of Christianity from the get-go, but frequently, and depending where you were, also occupied the underside of power. So you have this weird dynamic within Catholicism, which makes it so absolutely fascinating to study Canadian Catholicism, because it kind of, in some ways, and at some points in history, operates on both sides of the spectrum as being powerful and powerless. So, so maybe kind of following up on what we've been talking about, I was going to ask yeah, we've talked about history, but I want to talk about like, if you look back, so if a 22nd century Jamie was to look back into the 21st century, like right now, what are some, what would you observe us in the evolution of historical formation of Canada in the 21st century in terms of church? 
Okay, well, I have to start this by saying, as a historian, we never go into the future. Ever, ever, <laughs> ever, ever. So you're asking me to betray the, the code of my discipline because humans are chaotic and very complex. And many in my field, much smarter than I, have attempted to discern patterns in history to see if we can to see if it could be predictive. And I mean, of course, some stuff is, but just purely speculation, because right? I don't want to say no to this question, but purely speculation. Nothing about what I'm going to say is a hill I'm going to die on. Everybody's, of course, everybody's focal point will be on 2020, because I think entire future historians will build their entire career just trying to figure out what 2020 and 2021 actually mm. was. The hope I have going forward is I think the most important thing Canadian Christians, uh, whether you're born and raised here, whether you come here later in life, whether you come here when you're two or three, or you know you have parents from another part of the world, but you were raised in Canada, is to be very intentional on not to blend our ideas of of what Christianity is. First off, with American, because we we are seeing profound division and political pandering south of the border. Now, that's not fair. I'm going to explain that as an outsider. As a Canadian looking down, it's very easy just to see the broad strokes and, and lack the nuance. And I have many students that are American that as they communicate, you're like, yeah, when you're in it, it's a lot harder to see it. And they're seeing something different than we're, than we're seeing. But I still think it's really important that if, if the Canadian Christian voice is going to go forward, and I mean, one, it will because of immigration. If for no other reason, immigration will keep Canadian Christianity a vital, if small, voice on the Canadian landscape. And I think that's, that's interesting. But if, if we really do want to find ways to be Canadian Christians and enact and communicate the gospel that is, rel- that is tied into the gospel, as well as Canadian culture, we have to be intentional about our definitions. We have different stories than America. Our definitions can't be the same. In the early days, it was also separating ourselves from the British Empire and Europe, because also very successful. 21st century, that's that's less so. America would definitely be the dominant one. And to hopefully embrace a much more, for lack of a better term, almost like a smaller ecclesiology that, that values the connections of, of smaller communities, genuinely doing something. In Canada, historically, it seems like the step one has to be social care. And then step two is whatever you define as proper doctrine, but on, on with the understanding that social care does not always, you're not always rewarded with greater numbers because you do good social care. And, uh, and so that has to be one of those things you're like, okay, we need to take care of each other for no other reason than everybody has the Imago day. We all contain the image of God. This is, this is our journey. And I really think if we slow that down, future generations of Canada will benefit. And so one of the analogies I give is if we sort of put ourselves in the role of the pioneers of, you know, the late 1700s, early 1800s, our work is going to be relentless. It's going to be exhausting. It is not going to yield many results for the foreseeable future, but it'll prepare the ground for people who are probably infants and not quite born yet to have an ability to be able to communicate the gospel in ways that their peers will understand and with values that they will agree are to be celebrated within and outside the church and to be like, and we can thank the church that we have and we can do this right now, socialized healthcare. 
a variety of, of work regulations, a variety of human rights that are very much tied to Christianity, even if people don't recognize that now. So that's about as close as I'm going to get to pre- pre- predicting the future. And then the last thing I'll say is if I'm looking back from the 22nd century, I'll be like, oh, man, I can't we, I can't believe we made it this long. So that would just be my first thing. It's like, <laughs> wow, we survived the 21st century. It that was a 50-50 at best. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We made it. It's it's still uncertain right now. So <laughs> oh, very uncertain. And it always has been. And I do want to say this. There, there's a lot of fear, like when we're recording this, of course, Russia and Ukraine. I mean, COVID is going to remain part of our worldview for a long time, part of our experience for a long time. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. Of course, we've got economic crises that we're in and are going to get worse in the foreseeable future for sure. So there's a lot to be scared of. As a historian, the thing I try to remind people, and maybe this goes back to John's earlier question about, about hope, is let's say from 1950s, we'll say from the end of the Second World War up until recent, that's the blip. That's the anomaly in the human story. Mm-hmm. What we've been going through for the past few years, that is most people's lived experience throughout human history. Like, keep on, the bubonic plague was around for 400 years. Like, generations of people just lived their entire lives with plague. That's just life. Keep in mind, the bubonic plague had like sometimes a mortality rate as high as one in two, one in three. So you're like, my goodness, like genuine fatalities all over the place. And that was just life. That 1950s to, I mean, I, I think we can really say that the world changed on, on September 11th. For the West, the world did change on 2001. And like all changes, it takes years for that to really, the impact of it to be seen. But that was the anomaly. Like life was pretty good life expecting me is really good. And like, like hats off to the boomers. They really picked the best. <laughs> they picked the best time <laughs> to be born and grow up like basic, fi- like I know there's a couple blips in there, but basic financial stability, housing was affordable. You could make a pretty decent living on one career, no world wars. You had enough time to sort of complain about things that aren't really that important. I was like, hats off to the boomers. You, <laughs> you guys knocked that one out of the park. I don't think any other generation has had it as sweet as they did. They won the lottery. They won it. the lottery. Oh they my goodness. Did they ever win the lottery? And then there were the Gen Xers. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, our origin stories are of all people to get privilege, it should be Gen X because we we were the ones who complained against the boomers. Like our, our, our mission in life was to complain against the boomers who had, so we were the ones complaining about the softness and I've now lived long enough to go. And I actually say this in my book is like, I would give anything to go back to the laments that we had in the 1990s. Like that was, that was a sweet time to be complaining because you know, millennials and Gen Z inherited a dumpster fire. <laughs> so sorry guys. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, it wasn't our fault. Keep in mind, and uh, this is true, Gen X is, the boomers are the largest generation in human history. And Gen X is nowhere, even if every Gen X person agreed on one thing, we couldn't, we couldn't exact change. We, like, there's just physically not enough of us. So we inherited, but we gave you the language of, of, of change and reform. And never forget, we also gave you the internet. So I think, I think we can wash our hands of this. We did the best we could. I love generational discussions because it's so funny because at some level it's just nonsense, but on another level, it actually makes a lot of sense. So we had a conversation before where you were describing how the generational change happened and you look at Superman and Batman. Yeah. I mean, the, 
the nineties are an interesting time because uh, again, it is still a fairly like that's during the nineties, you have like the dot com bubble. So like the economy just goes, it explodes because of the internet. The biggest presidential scandal we had was Bill Clinton and his unchucked libido. And I would give anything to go back to just having those kinds of problems, <laughs> those kinds of problems from a uh, good old 1600 Pennsylvania. It's just one of those interesting things. Cause again, comics, and I'm a bit of a comic book nerd, so I don't know how, Definitely comics in the 90s were nowhere near as big as they are now. Like now, obviously, comics are mainstream. But I always thought it was interesting that in the 90s, Superman dies. Like the unkillable Kryptonians, uh, he dies because he was too, like nobody cared about Superman. And that was literally the only thing you could do to make him interesting was because he was too, he was so cheesy. He always made the right decision. He was just perfect and noble and and unkillable. And, and so there was nothing really about him. Like, you can't be brave when nobody kills you, because what are you going to be afraid of? And every once in a while, there's somebody somehow gets their hands on kryptonite. And we're like, nobody really understood how that uh, that made him weak. But at the end of the day, it was like, oh, Superman got killed. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But it's no coincidence that in the 90s, Batman is huge. Like Tim Burton's Batman with Jack Nicholson as the Joker was monstrous. And Batman did kind of fall into cheesiness a little bit, but there was a darkness to it. I said there's a few movies and popular TV shows that came out in the 90s that didn't quite have the language or the audience to really overthrow the So like there's Beverly Hills 90210 when I was a kid. And it was like such a cheesy you know, like all these rich, beautiful young people and all their problems, but it was massive, like millions of people watched it. And then subsequent shows would come afterwards that I felt kind of mimicked what at that time was being referred to as the emerging church is it was sort of making fun of, but like the making fun of these previous models, they were still doing the previous models, but it's almost like it was like that half a step is like, we're making fun of this because it's so outdated and it's so over the top and it's so you know, ridiculous, but didn't actually have the ability to do anything different. And we're still, it was almost like just making fun of it was enough, but you can't make fun of something and then basically mimic it. So Batman, again, the dark Knight, the sort of more violent element of it was very fitting for age. We like the darkness. It sort of embodied a little bit more of the Nietzsche-esque philosophy which was gen x and and gen x we like the suburbs is where we were raised and i'm i'm saying we like obviously that's a bit of a sweeping term but you know white kids in the suburbs we were listening to hip-hop we were listening to nwa we were listening to public enemy and and loving this and of course pretending to be dangerous pretending to be cool but i mean like we're white kids in the suburbs and obviously it's my my own experience but as we got older, we moved back to the cities. And so we sat in the coffee shops, we sat in the pool halls, we wanted to do and we talked about, you know, Chomsky and Leonard Cohen and Nietzsche. And, uh, and that was our way of rejecting the materialism of our parents, the Superman mentality of our parents of like, always stand up and do right. And embracing Batman, who was dark and twisted and trying to do the right thing, but could just as easily become a villain. That kind of resonated with us. I think the very interesting thing, and you describing it, just kind of sparked this kind of idea that during the death of Superman storyline, and I'm kind of making this as a parallel to the church, is that when Doomsday appears in the story, and he is this unknown, he is this creature, and everything that they are trying to do to stop him to slow him down is not working. The Justice League 
gets their butts handed to them terribly. <laughs> and Superman has a couple bouts with him, leading eventually to his death. And I wonder if, in some way, secularity, and you know, we were talking about that a little bit earlier, is continuing to press down. And the church is needing to consider new ways of being the church because the old ways aren't working anymore. And if we continue to persist in the old ways, we're going to die, <laughs> right? And, and so, you know, it's interesting you brought that up as, as, as a storyline that you, you're just kind of talking about, but there's an interesting kind of parallel. And like, for those who want to read, read Death and Return of Superman, it's a great storyline. But I think it's so interesting to think about like the, the trajectory of our church and the Canadian church and all different aspects of it, that if we continue to hold on to certain things, that it's not going to survive. In fact, there, it needs to be this shift to be able to then continue to be a faithful witness to the kingdom. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't like throwing this around, but yeah, amen. I mean, and the fact that the character's name is Doomsday is so perfect. You know, you might as well just call him Judgment Day. And I think you're right. Like, obviously, the authors aren't are thinking it's like, oh, this is going to be a great parallel for the church. But you don't have to be Freud to figure out the psychological comparisons of the culture that has no use for the perfect hero. And I mean, if the church wants to be reflective, like, it's not that hard to move Jesus and Superman interchangeably. The way that Jesus was communicated, because again, Jesus has his own death story. But the, the, the 1980s, 1990s, for lack of a better term, seeker-sensitive movement and probably more Norman Vincent Peale sort of like, the, like this power of positive thinking thing that, that happened a little, few years earlier, Jesus is increasingly interpreted through the light uh, or the lens of psychology. Jesus is going to heal you of whatever. And I mean, now we have a lot more research. We have a lot more awareness of a variety of mental health issues. But in the 80s and 90s, it was like this is this becomes increasingly the way that Jesus is understood is, as you know, you follow Jesus, you're going to get whatever you believe your life should be. And part of that's televangelism. Part of that's Jim and Tammy Faye. Part of that's, you know, swagger, the people who were able to change the quote unquote rewards of Christianity from the hereafter to the here and now becomes a lot more material. So Superman is this almost embodiment of that, that Gen X had no use for. And I think your, your point, and I think this will be the sticky wicket for people even now, is if we do want to have a Christianity that is, like you said, a little bit more faithful, what does a Batman Christianity look like? It is going to be broken. <laughs> it is going to be dark. It is going to be questionable. It has those moments where you're like, good guy or bad guy? And I don't know, I don't want to stretch the analogy too thin, but I think that's where a lot of people are still operating from this model of if we show some genuine blessing, then people will return. But what Batman undid was like, let's get rid of that sort of cheesy, perfect person. And for me, that is epitomized in, in The Watchmen. And again, The Watchmen was not huge. It was, it was an underground thing that became big in the 21st century because, of course, Batman obviously then the, the, the 90s Burton Batman obviously falls weak too. But then you get The Watchmen coming in and that's the quintessential question. It's like, what if there are people that have these powers, but unlike the superheroes we were raised on, are just like us and are just messed up. And then the power becomes a bit of a nightmare. And that's, I was like, Ooh, I, and of course it's on the backdrop of all sorts of, you know, 1980s, 1990s political stuff, this dystopia. 
But that's that's where I think the sticky wicket for a lot of Christians now, again, would rather have the shiny, here's, here's our seven points, here's what we believe in paragraph form, here's how we're going to manifest it. But the question I always want to ask people like that is like, how much bearing does that have, one, in real life, and two, for how long? Like there's people in your community that are broken and are breaking and won't share because they're afraid it reveals unconfessed sin or they're not living up to this cultural bar that has been set, which breaks my heart because when you genuinely read Jesus in the New Testament, it has so much teaching on suffering. It has so many different ways to look at um anxiety and fear and death itself is not an abandonment of God. Paul says, he's like, he can get to a place where he talks about these horrific things that have happened to him, how bad he is at communicating, how much he says, you know, he, he nicknames, and I believe it's in Corinthians, when he talks about the super apostles that are taking the church away, he's like, do you remember how bad I was at preaching? And yet <laughs> you came to believe, don't you see that I, my being so bad at this proves the spirit? Anybody can fall for a polished message. That's nothing. But when you believe in something produced so poorly that shows the power of God, why are you falling away for that? Why are you giving up the stake for the sizzle? And I think that'll be a really interesting way for Canadian Christians to go forward. Because again, we don't have to fight against our culture in the same way American Christians have to. We are small. We are multivaried. And probably most importantly, and this is what I'll close with, is we don't have a Bible belt. There is no read. There's, there's definitely very Christian regions like Carleton County, New Brunswick, uh, Three Hills, Alberta, Simon Fraser Valley has certain elements. But as far as like a, a political and cultural fortress, Canada doesn't have a Bible belt. There's no region in Canada where a church can count on regular church attendance. And rather than seeing that as a negative, I think that actually frees us up to maybe start what does a Batman faith look like in the 21st century and it'll be ugly and scary and dare i say it maybe a little dark i don't know if that's i don't know if theologically i can say that but i'll leave it there but isn't that fun that it we've got not only language but cultural expectation of reinvention and if like the 21st century i mean nothing works and i don't mean in the church i mean society like that's and like like 21st century has been a again like all these it's a dumpster fire of you know wars and financial crises and a global pandemic and you know remember when the entire continent of australia was on fire like literally just unbelievable stuff and political divisions and all this stuff nothing's working for any sustainable period of time everything's being thrown up in the air and i think this is the genuine beginning of postmodernity and so postmodernity is going to necessitate reinvention and what I would love to see Christians lean on is the fact that we also have historic 2000 years, a historic voice to give us permission to reinvent without losing, like, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't have to like untether, but so many of us, and I have this whole section on the early 20th century was different, but again, similarities is we have this beautiful historic faith that I would argue I've yet to encounter any real element of human suffering or celebration that isn't spoken about in the New Testament, it pulls zero punches about the mm -hmm. human condition. The problem is, and every single church I study ever always puts the Bible, like without, like they always put the Bible first and foremost, 
this is, you know, we use the Bible. This is how we go from Catholic to Orthodox to all the Protestants. Everybody understands, quote unquote, the Bible. The historian looks at me like, okay, how are you understanding the Bible? And that's not the same thing. That's that's doctrine or traditions. It's not dogma. And another word that's unfortunately come under negative. Dogma is that core. This is the core tenets of historic Christianity. Can you throw Jesus out as a physical resurrection? You can, but you've broken ties with historic Christianity because that was not for all the Da Vinci Code, early 21st century conspiracy theories around it. The earliest believers of Jesus held to resurrection. You can disagree with it all you want and break away from it. But that's when as a historian, I'm like, okay, well, then you've broken with historic Christian faith. I get like the idea that somebody comes back from the dead sounds ridiculous to a 21st century scientific mind. Some of the greatest minds I know are also like, we don't, we know a drop in the ocean of how this universe we operate in actually exists. So there's room for all sorts of stuff. So right now it's like believing in it or not believing in it are both elements of faith. Choose this day, which, which camp you want to stand in and then go forward. But it's those other sort of elements that they throw away. And then there's people who like, they lock into certain doctrine or traditions, whether it's, you know, women in leadership, their views on LGBTQ plus interpretations of the Bible, all that sorts of stuff. They lock into that as if it is core to the gospel. And like, that's, that's either going to be doctrine or traditions, or maybe even further out beliefs and opinions. Again, to our conversation earlier, fine. I would never counsel anybody to give up their beliefs. Like that would be a horrible abuse of, of historical knowledge. And, and frankly, I, I'm, I have no vested interest in anyone's beliefs uh, as a historian. I just look at how you manifest that in the world, but just be aware that if you're confusing that with the gospel, and if you're in Canada, the Canadian culture has moved to these points very visibly. And so if you want to hold to this point back there, fine, but understand that this is the hill your church dies on, which again, everything has to die. I don't say that as a doomsday kind of thing. <laughs> if Superman can die, any of us can die. If Target can't make it work in Canada, any of us cannot make it work in Canada. That's a terrible sentence, but you know what I mean. Moving away from big bulk stores. <laughs> we ever really move away from big bulk stores, Enya? You know, unfortunately not. But We don't. <laughs> they got us. Let's go back to the mom and pop shops. Everything. Yes. Yep. I'm wondering a little bit about that multivariance that you're talking about, maybe through like how maybe the churches changed through immigration patterns, or even if you could talk about settler and indigenous relations mm. within the church. I know you've got limited amount of time, but maybe give us a snapshot of how you touch on those in your book. I mean, the short the short form is indigenous experiences with Christianity is a terrible one. It is a terrible uh, history. It's It was the hardest chapter to write. It will, has, and will cause me tears again. Uh, this is not a celebration of my own sensitivity or to prove how woke I am. It's no matter how much I wrote and rewrote it, uh, I know my own perspective as a settler, as a descendant of settlers. Um, there will be language in there that I use that will probably unintentionally, but that's irrelevant, unintentionally harm somebody going forward. I can only share a historic perspective. I can only share a settler perspective. And I, could, I, having to step away from that chapter several times, uh, and I say this in the book, is as I read more and more Indigenous voices on this stuff, I realized the, even the ability to step away from it is more evidence of, of where I stand. Like that, this is not an issue for me. But for me, 
it is the issue of 21st century Canadian Christianity. We not only can we not go forward, we don't deserve to go forward, in my humble opinion, until this is addressed so much better than we are actually doing. The the complexity, and we'll have to leave this and if you want to come back, the complexity is, of course, because Christianity is only growing thanks to immigration, a lot of new Christians, this is not part of their story. If you come from China or India or Korea or Africa or South America, you are not part of the settler Christian program. You did not have any part in the indigenous suffering that the Catholic Church, that the Anglican Church, that the Presbyterian Church, that United Church, that the RCMP, that the Oblates, all these different people genuinely do need to apologize for and reconcile. So I'll say this, what I see maybe first and foremost um, for Christian churches now is the the narrative, which is very popular. And this is where I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to catch flack for this. The, the dominant narrative, and of course, supported by evidence, is that Christianity was forced upon Indigenous people. And there's, of course, we have multiple examples of that happening. It's definitely after 1870, when, when all the variety uh, of Métis, First Nations, and Inuit were considered wards of the state, when Canada just absolutely forced the stuff upon them, which absolutely happened. But I also do know Indigenous Christians that are 16th, 17th generation Christians. Indigenous Christianity is the oldest form of Christianity in what we now call Canada, where I see the reprehensible and anti-Christ, and I don't throw that word along, but anti-Christ nature of Canadian Christianity still alive and breathing and kicking nowadays is that nobody that I know of, or very few, I don't like using the term nobody, very few Christians I know of in, we'll just say settler circles and other circles, look to indigenous Christian voices as voices of wisdom, as theological voices to learn from. We will hear their stories and there's still that condescending trope of, oh, look what we did to this group here. Look what we did to this group here. And and fair, that's part of the apology, but also can we at least not sit back and be like, look how arrogant my understanding of Christianity is. And the and I can look to American resources. I can look to European resources. I can look to Euro- Australian bands and music and feel very confident that uh, I'm a good Canadian Christian with this multiplicity of sources. And how many people are looking to Indigenous preachers, theologians, church planters as profound keepers of wisdom, not in the Thomas King's Inconvenient Indian, his word, is so good because he does talk about the co-opting of quote-unquote indigenous cultures, which and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but he's so funny and so like Mark Twain-esque witty. He's like, it has as much to do with Inuit culture as Eskimo pies. Like it, it's nothing, but it's sold because again, Canadians, we church shop. We want to make sure that our individual needs are met. And that doesn't just extend to the church. That's any kind of quasi-spiritualism, which would include, and because it's a little bit trendy right now, and I mean that in the dismissive way, it's very trendy to be, to show how pro-Indigenous you are, to show how woke you are. The problem is there's no real substance behind that. And, I'm, I, and this is one of those topics that cannot be a trend. The Christian voice in Canada should not it will, it could, but from my humble opinion, again, should not move one step forward until we embody actual reconciliation by honoring the fact that indigenous territory is, and the background behind that is nightmares too, but we don't have time to get into it. 
but is a sovereign state. These are other nations and should be respected as such. These are the, these are Christians that have found really exciting understandings of the Bible. They've uh, many people have moved past sort of like, here's how you can bring Christianity into indigenous worldview. And the, the change is profound because like, here's how an indigenous worldview actually opens up Christianity in ways that you, I'm pointing myself, have misunderstood or, or overlooked. There it is. There's the shameless plug. Um, <laughs> and that's, there's no genuine or very little genuine respect for an indigenous Christian perspective. For those who want indigeneity and indigenous worldviews to go back to a pre-Christian worldview, and for those Christians who want to bring indigenous people in, but only if they, when they change their ideas a little more, now we have this other literally overlooked group of people who are indigenous and Christian do not see those as two competing worldviews, but like, this is how I understand Christ and how unbelievably powerful that would be. And then this is where I'll wrap because here's my big asterisk. Any Christian that looks like me, and for the listeners, I am uh, as white as it gets. Any Christian looks like me that engages with an indigenous Christian for the sake of reclaiming my influence or my church's influence over the Canadian landscape, well, that's just 21st century colonialism. Nope, I don't agree with that at all. Listening to an indigenous Christian out of the inherent understanding that their worldview is both rooted to this place and more ancient than any form of Protestantism, now we're getting a little bit closer to what I think could be genuine reconciliation. Well, thank you so much, Dr. James Robertson, for sharing with us today. This was a great conversation, and history, as we're talking about history, we'll look back on this episode and, sh- and reveal if it is the best episode ever. Right. Number 86. <laughs> it's a good number. 86. 86. 86 is a great number. Thank you so much for your time. And I also want to plug a little bit that you will be teaching a course in the spring and summer at yeah. Tyndale. What happened to Christian Canada? Oh, yeah. Wow. What is the two sentence promo for that course? We are going to interactively, I'll say this, it's open to people who want to take it for their degree or an audit. So it is open to people who maybe aren't in Tyndale. We are going to interactively, through a historical lens, try to see if we can build a better Christian Canada. Twice a week, we're going to dig into this, have a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, get the historical context, and see if we can't remedy some of the ills of present-day Canada. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why isn't everyone taking this class? Exactly. That is the question. Everyone really should. Everyone really, really should. Anyways, thank you so much for giving us a bit of your time today. And it has been a fruitful conversation. There's so many themes from today's topic that really resonate with us as we continue to navigate through what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean for us in a Canadian context and an Asian context? The, some of the things you brought out, even though you said them not in particularly from the Asian perspective, Things like reconciliation, things like about what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to see impact and influence into the world? I think that's a lot for us to digest and process through. So we really appreciate you today. Thank you. This uh, this has been wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot. And that'll be it for our episode today. Let us know what you think. There was so much to unpack in what Dr. James Robertson was talking about. Once again, if you haven't checked it out already, his book, Overlooked, has come out and we would highly encourage you guys all to check it out and to listen to the forgotten stories of Canadian Christianity. 
Also, his course is going to be starting next week on May 10th on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and it has an online synchronous option too. So really consider taking this class with him. We'd love to hear your feedback from this episode, which had so much for us to consider. You can always reach us by Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or by email. Our email address is contact.campodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, subscribe, and share this podcast to others. That helps us to get this conversation out there. You've been listening to the Canadian Agent Mission Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.